Staff Eng Podcast, where we interview software engineers who have progressed beyond the career level into staff levels and beyond. We're interested in the areas of work that set staff plus level engineers apart from other individual contributors. Things like setting technical direction, mentorship and sponsorship, providing engineering perspective to the org, etc. My name is David Noel Romas, and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex Kessinger. We're both staff plus engineers who have been working in software for over a decade. Alex, please tell us a bit about today's guest. Yeah. Lauren Hochstein is a senior software engineer at Netflix, where he works on the managed delivery team. And you might also know him on Twitter as NoRuCause. I'm excited to share this episode with you all because we touch on the topics of resilience and reliability, which I really think underscores probably most staff engineering roles. So let's dive in. All right, Lauren, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. I'm looking forward to chatting with you. Could you please start by just sort of telling us who you are and what you do? Sure. So I'm Lauren Hochstein. I work at Netflix. I feel like a little bit like a fraud here because I am like, I am not a staff. (laughs) I'm a senior software engineer at Netflix because Netflix doesn't really have levels like that. Pretty much everyone, almost all the ICs are seniors. So I work in the delivery engineering part of Netflix these days on a project called Managed Delivery. So we're working on a sort of declarative delivery system that is easier to reason about than traditional pipeline stuff. So there's a lot of interesting problems around automation and a system that's automatically doing things that I found really interesting. And so I, I kind of convinced that team to take me on. I like to jump around a lot. It's like my third team at Netflix now since I've been here for about six years. Cool. Yeah. And we totally understand. I think that the title is, it's not as important as like, you know, the work that you do. So really don't worry about it. I think we're going to talk about some really interesting things. So I'm curious, you know, regardless of sort of titles, you know, what do senior software engineers do at Netflix? Is there a typical set of expectations or does everyone sort of have their own spin on the role? Yeah. So one of the really interesting things about Netflix is that historically they've only hired seniors. So there's not like a mix of juniors and seniors on the teams. So everyone on the team is a senior. And also, you know, we do like you build it, you run it. So everyone on the team who's doing software development is also doing operations. So in a sense, kind of like everyone is expected to be a leader and do leadership stuff. And so, you know, in addition to doing like everyone does development, right? So I do, you know, definitely a lot of coding. Everyone does design work. Everyone does you know, coordination with other teams, right, to do cross-functional kind of cat herdy stuff, right? Everyone has to do a little bit of cat herding. And so you can sort of choose how much of that you want to do. And it's sort of up to you based on your particular interest on like where you're going to spend your time, right? Like, are you going to spend your time thinking about like, what is the long-term design stuff with this project that we're working on so that we don't, you know, hit a whole lot of pain in a couple months because it's too hard to change, Maybe you're interested in, okay, I want to coordinate with this other, you know, we're all, we say, what is it? Loosely coupled, highly aligned, right? Mm-hmm. Is the, is the way we talk about it? Although, you know, often it's loosely coupled, loosely aligned, right? Like it's when you're, when you're loosely coupled, you're sort of optimized for moving quickly individually, but not necessarily for alignment. That's much harder to do. And so there are a lot of engineers now who work more around cat herny kind of stuff, trying to get the teams to move in the same direction, trying to coordinate like all these different teams are doing different efforts and you want to make sure things are coherent. You know, I work under the platform engineering org, right? So all our, our customers are internal Netflix engineers. 
And historically, it's been very sort of disjointed experience for them. Like all the tools are like totally different. And so there's a bigger push now to make that more cohesive, but that means better coordination. And since there's no, you know, architects or anything, like it's, it's sort of tricky to move things forward and get big things done that way. I actually personally don't do as much of the cat herding y kind of stuff. The, Stuff that I personally do that crosses teams is like me crossing teams, right? So like, so the the way I think about it is I I like to like spread knowledge around by moving around the the org. And one thing that we have, I think, not been as good at as other companies at Netflix is like historically people have not moved around as much. It's gotten a lot better recently. But like when I started, there was no internal mechanism to let you move around. Like it was almost taboo a little bit and now there's like an internal job site and it's it's more of a thing but that was definitely something that was that was quite different when i first got there interesting so it sounds like you talked a little bit about how you sort of approach your job you know maybe a little bit differently than the necessary the broad expectations you know is there anything else that you feel like you do that's special to the way that you practice being a senior software engineer yeah so i mean i'm personally kind of interested in like grassrootsy kind of stuff, like bottom-up things, working with the engineers, not necessarily on sort of larger initiatives, but like sort of improving things. So I, for example, run systems reading, which is a like a paper reading group inside of Netflix where we, you know, people get together and talk about interesting papers. It's funny, when I got there, I saw there was a group that had existed at one time. There was like a Google group, but it had lay fallow. Like everyone involved had gone and it had stopped. And so we started that up again. I did something called, uh, I tried to do something called Oops, where I get people to talk about sort of near misses that have happened inside of Netflix, not just, you know, the big incidents, but the stuff that like didn't necessarily have customer impact, but there's interesting things to learn from there. So that's another example. I brought in Hillel Wayne. He teaches on TLA Plus, right? So one of the first workshops he did was at Netflix. I brought him in there. So there's interest in that. So these are things that are not like, you know, we're going to move a big rock up a hill, right, to accomplish this. But it's like trying to kind of upskill the engineers inside the organization. This is a really interesting aspect of you know, what I would sort of think of as staff level work and, and obviously at Netflix that, that label doesn't exist, but this idea of knowledge sharing, one of the challenges that I think a lot of organizations face is that they don't sort of, a lot of organizations fail to incentivize that properly or fail to reward it properly. First of all, would you agree with that? And, and do you think that there's like, that Netflix does things better in that regard? Is there sort of like, you know, beyond sort of thinking it's the right thing to do, are there any incentives nudging you in the direction of sort of helping the folks around you level up? Yeah. So this is another area where I think Netflix has gotten better in the past few years. Like when I first started, the expectation was we are going to hire seniors and we're just sort of assume that you're going to be at that level and we're not really going to invest in, in like, you know, like upskilling you, like we're hiring you to be high skilled, right? And now there is like a developer education org, right? So it's changed over time. And now there's more investment in, you know, I would say like improving the education, the skills of the people inside the org. A lot of that is around like, you know, sort of like classes and training-y kind of stuff. But the stuff that I'm more interested in is like learning from other people inside the organization, right? I find like I have always personally learned best by like, you know, looking over someone else's shoulder, working next to someone who's really, really good. And 
you know, if you're not deliberate about that, so, I mean, that happens organically on, on teams, but if you're not deliberate about sharing that, it, it doesn't happen. And I don't think there's a, a huge organizational push for that. That's just sort of something I'm, I'm trying to push from the bottom. I mean, one of the challenges is that like, you know, like there's not enough time to do anything, right? Like everyone everywhere has more work than they have capacity, right? Like you always have like, yep. a, so it's always hard to make space for stuff that like does not obviously have like, you know, a near-term impact, right? And so spending the the resource to do stuff like that is is hard to justify. And so I find you sort of like kind of have to do it like on the side a little bit, right? Like one of my motivations for doing the the oops work for getting people to do, you know, write-ups of, of near misses is because I want them to teach other people how to deal with operational stuff. So like one thing I do with my team. So before I was on this team, I was so actually, I started Netflix on what's called the Chaos Team, right? Like I applied from the website. I was like, oh, like I've heard of Chaos Monkey. That's really cool. And so I got I got on the team, and I thought that was really interesting. And what happened though when I was on that team, you know, building tools that were intentionally causing failures in production, <laughs> is that I found that it was actually more interesting. Like the real failures are more interesting than the sort of like synthetic ones we were injecting. And I just sort of got like sucked into that world of, of incidents. And I'd always look over at the incident management team, which was our sister team. And I was like, oh, like that's really cool. And I ended up moving on to that team because I just wanted to spend all my time studying incidents. And those folks are super good at operations. Like real, like that's all they do, right? And then I did that for about a year. I was on the incident management team and I'm like, okay, I want to be a regular software engineer again. And then I came onto this team and this team did not have as much operational expertise, right? And so because I had been that on the other team for a year, so what I did on my team is I, I run a meeting called This Week in Managed Delivery Operations, where we talk about all the things that have happened this week that are interesting operations wise. And the, the goal of it is to, have people talk through, okay, what did you see at this time? Okay, what were you thinking? Where did you look? And to try to teach people from the experiences of other people to understand how they were like debugging in the moment, which is not typically the way people think in terms of like talking about what happened after an incident. So you have to kind of be like deliberate about that. You have to have that as, as a goal that you want people to walk through, like to see through other people's eyes, to learn from their experience. It's hard to scale something like that. I'd say it's like working pretty well on, on my team. People have gotten much better. It's a lot of fun. But the, the trick is to sort of like infect the rest of the org so that people start doing that and, and sort of spread it that way. But that's like not quite a process thing, but it's sort of like a habit that has to be developed, right? And so like building better habits across an org is, I would say, sort of the kind of like interesting, you know, staffish level work that I'm trying to do in some small way. Yeah, I think that idea of of really trying to change culture. So first of all, the only way you can change culture is by influence, right? You can't mandate a change to culture, right? And so one of the things that Alex and I talk about a lot in the podcast and otherwise is that like the main distinction between or the sort of the interesting distinction between staff engineers and like more traditional types of leaders within organizations is that we're like explicitly handed you know, we're explicitly expected to influence folks, but we're not handed any authority to do it, right? And that might seem like a handicap, but I think when you're thinking about changing culture, it's sort of the only way that you can do it. And so it's fascinating that, that you sort of like intentionally set out, you've realized this area where like the business obviously would get a lot of value if you were able to change the culture toward one that approached operations differently. And actually, I think we'll circle back to sort of what that culture would look like because I have a lot of questions there. But assuming that such a culture exists, you're trying to shift the culture into that direction. And the only option toward doing that is is to influence other folks. Is this something that like 
is this like an explicit strategy that you've like outlined to management and they've bought into it? Is it more sort of like, oh, Lauren's off doing his thing and we sort of trust him? Or like, how does that situation work? Yeah. So on my current team, it's more the latter, more like, okay, Lauren's off like doing this thing. On my first team, it was like that too. Like my first team, it was like, okay, Lauren's off doing these, these weird things, studying, you know, incidents, even though that's not what he does. When I was on the second team, when I was on what's called the core team, that was more explicit. That was more, okay, you know, I'm going to be doing some like resilience type stuff. Like this is sort of like my like scope. Like I had to go on call because like all the engineers at the time, like on that team, when I was on there, the only way I could really get on that team was to do like incident response as well as the analysis. Like I, I didn't want to do the response, but I'm like, all right, I'll do it. The other option was to become like a TPM. I, I didn't want to do that. But like there, it was, it was quite explicit. And like we ended up hiring a couple of new like resilience engineers onto that team. And, you know, I worked on, you know, creating like job descriptions for that. And, you know, I was involved in, in hiring those folks. So there it was a little more deliberate on that. And then I, I honestly sort of kind of got like burnt out on that. And I said, so I did that like after a year, I'm like, wow, this is really hard. And like, I, you know, it was too much, I think, to do both the on-call kind of work, like to move back and forth. So one of the challenges I found at an organization where you have to work at different levels, like we do, like one day you're like coding and debugging and next day you're, you know, doing sort of larger scope project stuff is, is I have a hard time moving up and down those levels. And on that team, I had a hard time switching back and forth between doing, you know, incident response and then doing the sort of broader like analysis. And then, okay, what do we, how do we look across a whole bunch of incidents and find themes? And how do we, you know, what do we do with this? And so I was like, okay, I, I, you know, like I, the problem was like, I got what I wanted. And like, what I found this the second time in my career that like, I went after something that was hard and I got it. And I was like, wow, actually day to day, like, this is not really what I want to do. And so I, I went back to more traditional role, but I still, I'm very interested in that, that style. I I sort of have to do it out of the corner of my eye, I think. Like, I I feel like I have to do the, like, higher impact stuff on the side rather than being the primary focus, because otherwise, I, it's, it's just too much for me. That's a really interesting insight. When you, when you felt like you recognized that the role that you had got wasn't what you wanted, you know, how did you go about having that conversation with your manager or your organization to transition to a different role? Yeah. So, you know, my manager was at the time was really, really great. So he was the one I would say was, was mostly responsible for me being able to move over to that team. And at the time when I moved over to that team, the core team, my manager was then an IC on that team and he sort of like sponsored me to come over. And then, you know, he became manager and then he created space for these, these other roles and the more like, you know, human factor stuff. But he was like super easy to talk to. And I, I like, and he knew that I, you know, was getting stressed out. And, you know, I, I told him at one point that like, I just, I couldn't do both. I just told him one point, like, I just, I can't do both. And, you know, he took me off call for a while. And I, I just told him that like, I did not find myself being happy with that. But he was just like, he's great. We you know we, we still get along really, really well. And he was just a very, very like approachable person to talk to. And he's like, okay, you know, you want to switch teams? We'll, we'll make it happen. So I was very fortunate. Yeah. 
I think there's a lot of people who listen to this who are staff and they may not be exactly where they want to be or senior. And having those kinds of conversations could probably be incredibly stressful because you have to sort of acknowledge, like, maybe I don't want to do the thing that I'm doing. But in my experience, and I know it's not universal, like when you actually just bring these things up and talk to your managers, they're usually very compassionate about about these kinds of things. So it's good to hear more examples of that. Yeah, I mean, I would say that the hardest part of that is like actually saying it out loud to someone. Like when you are at the point where you're like, actually, you know, this isn't really what I want to do. Like you might like think that and feel that, but like saying it out loud to someone is like extremely cathartic and especially saying it out loud to your manager is a huge thing. Yeah, I would say like I see a lot of people at Netflix switch back and forth between IC to manager and then back, right? Because they think they want to do something you know, they think they want to try that path and you go there and you're like, well, actually, no, this isn't a good fit for me. And, you know, many of them just like oscillate back to IC again. Nice. I wanted to talk a little bit about sort of like the work that you're doing around resiliency. I thought a really interesting example that you brought up was the oops group or the oops talking. I'm curious about that because in a lot of places I've worked at, if an incident didn't happen, people would have been like, great, like we did our job. And we didn't have an incident. And so do you think you could explain a little bit like why an oops or like a close call is almost as important as an incident to learn from as, as an incident might be? Yeah. So, I mean, it depends on what you're you're trying to get out of it, right? So to me, you know, I, I think of incidents as a way of like understanding how the system actually works, right? So one of the challenges is like we all work in these sort of huge machines and we all only see like these little tiny parts of it, like our own part, right? And when something unexpected happens, when an operational surprise happens, like something happened in the system that somebody didn't expect, right? There was something we didn't know about the system. And that's usually really interesting. And it's very often an interaction between two parts, right? We all have our own parts and these things sort of fit together and we don't realize that like something weird is going to happen. And, you know, even if there's no customer impact, you can still learn just as much about like, you know, this thing about your system you didn't know from those sort of close calls. And the other thing is that, you know, I am interested in things like, okay, is there something confusing about, you know, a control interface, you know, like an operator interface, right? And, you know, you can still learn from those about that and you can still you know, deal with problems like that, or just watching it. I mean, my favorite is watching experts in action, right? And the close calls, typically, there's an expert that caught something early, right? And so I want to be able to learn from their experience. And so if I can get them to capture that experience, and I can read over it, then I can, you know, I can learn from that. Like, there was one guy on a team who this always blows my mind. They like, so there's this, there's a service at Netflix and it's Java based and you could actually like run a REPL on and like it basically runs a lot of like jars that people want. And he connected to it and like ran a REPL and was like querying the internal state of it to see that like it had gotten into a bad state. And that just sort of blew my mind that you could, <laughs> you could do that. Like you could, you know, that's usually thought, oh, you can't do a REPL in production. That's, that's nuts. But of course, like the Rails people do that all the time, right? So yeah, so like if if you're interested in learning in particular about like how experts do things, like I think that like close calls are great or maybe even better. The challenge once again is like 
making space for that, right? Like it takes time to do that. I mean, we get very few people doing it. And even me, like I try to do them. You know, when they happen, we have operational surprises on my team. And sometimes I get halfway through and I'm like, oh, I'm too busy. I'm not going to finish this up. And I, I have several, I have many like, you know, half finished oopses that I, I just never ended up publishing, which I feel bad about. And then the real irony, the scary thing is that there are like, I'll hear something and I'll go talk to someone and said, Hey, there's like, you know, I saw this surprise happen. Can you write it up? And the person's like, no, I'm like, I'm totally like underwater. I, I, I can't. And I'm like, well, actually that's really dangerous, right? Like anyone who like the oopses that don't get written up are on the teams that are like running too close to the margin. And so the places where we have the least signal are the ones where the most danger is. And that's kind of scary. And so, you know, one thing that I've always been really, really interested in is how do we collect those kinds of signals that we don't easily see about like teams that are like running into trouble so that we can act early on them. Yeah. The thing that I'm struck by is like the, the value of a near miss is like, it's easier to talk about because you didn't cause an incident, right? And so people are, I think, more open to the idea of talking about it, which is always nice. Do you feel like these things that you have done, are they influencing, you know, the organization that you work in, in a positive manner? Yeah, so I think it's very small scale. So like I sort of am able to infect people in different parts of the organization, right? Like, I think if you, like, you step back, you probably won't see that much impact. It's hard to see. And honestly, sometimes I don't even really know. But I think you can find, like, little clusters, right? And it sort of starts to spread around that way, like, putting, like, a drop of ink in, in the water. And that's sort of, like, I, I have found, like, that tends to be the most effective way to make these sort of changes. It's like you need... Right. And this is like well known, right? You need a champion, right? So the only way you really get like a change to happen is to have a champion who's, who's pushing it. And so if you can build champions, then you can, you know, sort of orchestrate change that way. And I'm, I guess I'm trying to get people like excited and interested in, in this sort of thing. Like the, the people who write up the oopsies are the people who, who start to get really into it, right? Like that is their self-motivated. They're like, oh, this is really cool. I like reading about these. You know, I want to write, write them up myself. And there's like, I have an oopsies channel and I like, I, I slack about like, Hey, look at this cool thing that happened here. And so, I mean, I don't know, like maybe there's very little impact. I mean, it's, it's very easy to say like, look, you're, you know, I don't really see anything, but I, I'm hoping that like, as I sort of infect people that, that it sort of spreads that way. Nice. Do you feel like you could name sort of like the cultural value that you're hoping to, you know, spread throughout the company? Yeah. So I don't know if I'd phrase it as a value. Like I'm trying to think how to articulate it. Like there's definitely Change, a notion of value, you know, whatever you it's I'm I'm not so worried about the specific verbiage. Sure. So like I'm very interested in distributing operational expertise, right? So I mean, operational in particular, that's my personal interest, but expertise. So basically, at every organization, there are people who are really, really good at stuff, right? Like, and I'm sure you both can name people in your orgs you've worked with that are really good. And my question is, like, always, like, how do we leverage those people in a way to, like, bring everyone else up, right? So, like, and so that is sort of the value that I sort of push the hardest on that I'm most interested in is how do you take, you know, people that are that are good and make them better by leveraging the people in the org who are better and like spreading their their skill around right like we're good as a society i would say from training people up from like sort of novice to like intermediate but like going beyond that is is a different way of it's not like training right like the, the learning is different 
and it's more experiential. And so like, how do you sort of scale up people's experience and scale up their expertise? That to me is like the kind of like grand challenge of, you know, improving engineering in an organization. Yeah. Do you feel like this sort of like blocker to going from intermediate to expert is that like complexity is growing at such a rate and our, our ability to build capacity is probably what moves us into the expert level, but like building capacity into being an expert is such a mysterious thing at this point because the complexity is so high. Like, do you think that that's like maybe one of the big blockers to sort of leveling up expertise in our modern, especially when we work in tech and we work in distributed systems and that kind of stuff? So interestingly, I don't think so. So, you know, complexity is definitely an issue and like we all we all face that all the time, right? Like we are, we are overwhelmed with the amount of complexity, but like that's always a problem. And like the systems are always too complex for us to really get a true handle on. I think that the primary obstacle to upskilling is the carving out time for reflection, right? The way you get better from your experiences, the way you leverage experiences, either your own or someone else's is by reflecting on them, by spending that time to look back. And when you're stretched, when like you don't have time, to think about it, then you don't have an opportunity to actually make the most of those experiences and get better. And so that to me is, is the hardest part. So there's like, you know, capacity in that sense is like carving out the time to look back and understand what happened. So, you know, as an example, like, you know, once an organization reaches a certain size, migrations are going to be happening all the time, right? Like at some point, it's not like, you know, are you doing a migration? It's like how many migrations are happening, right? And like, and you have to get good at like every organization, you know, has to have like once it reaches a certain level, doing migrations well has to become a core competency. And I don't know about you, but like in my experience, like many times the migrations do, you know, are are very painful, right? But it's, I found it extremely rare for people to reflect and say, okay, those migrations, like, what happened? Like, what did we think was going to happen? How did it actually go? What did we learn from them? Usually it's like, okay, it's done. Let's forget about it and move on. And I think that this is like my pet theory is one of the reasons we don't really get better over time, even though we think we will, right? Okay, last time that was my terrible, but this time, you know, it'll be better, is that we don't spend that effort to learn as much as we can from the previous migration so that in the future we can design our systems to make the next one easier. And like, I just see this happening again and again. And like, you know, I have on my list of things too. I would love to go back at Netflix and like treat as case studies, the various migrations that we've done to understand like, what can we learn from them? But it hasn't happened. Like I just, I haven't carved that time out and that would be an interesting role. But like, and I don't know, I mean, I, I don't know, you know, if you two have had experience with that, like looking back at migrations, but you know, I have to say, I haven't really seen it happen very much. Yeah. I think that's a good point. I think, Broadly speaking, sort of retroactively analyzing anything is, is hard to do in, in our organizations, right? They're trying to move forward so quickly. And I know that we I kind of harped on this already a little bit earlier, but I'm, I'm tempted to go back to it because now that I sort of understand a bit more about the changes that you're trying to drive, for myself, and I think probably for a lot of people listening, like you're kind of, you're preaching to the converted, right? It's like, yes, let's make more time for this stuff. And I think the, the sort of refrain or, or the sort of like, the hesitation that I certainly feel and that I think a lot of other people feel is like, 
Sure, but like, how do I justify that to management, right? And so going back to that question of like, what's the story that you tell, right? To a certain extent, you can just kind of do stuff, right? I've been there, done that, don't ask for permission, schedule the retro meeting, whatever it takes, right? But like, you know, it sounds like this is <laughs> this has become a pretty big part of your job. And after a point, someone's going to ask, all right, Lauren, what is, like, what was your, you know, write your performance evaluation for the half or whatever, right? And it's like, what goes in there? Yeah, so we don't have performance evaluations. <laughs> So, oh, awesome. Right? Which is kind of wild, which is actually one of the things I like about, about the org. But of course, to get resources, right? Like it's, it's one thing to, you know, on my own do things on the, you know, on the side, but it's another thing to say, okay, now I want to like spin up a team to do this. And then it's going to be like, well, you know, are we going to get an ROI on this? Like, is it worth it? And honestly, like, so I have not been super successful at that, <laughs> to be honest <laughs> with you. And, and so, so here's my sort of general, general thoughts on that. And it's funny because we are, Netflix is, at least in my org, a platform has not been as, I don't know, explicit about thinking in terms of like, okay, how much progress have we made on certain things? And now we're doing more like OKR-ish kind of stuff. So I would say in the future, it's going to be like even harder to justify. Like you sort of have to, like I was fortunate that I convinced, you know, my manager that this stuff was important. They bought into it. And like my manager's like skip level at the time was also into it. Right. And so you, you had like sort of champions throughout the hierarchy. And like, this is one of the things with resilience is that like, you have to be able to justify doing things, even if the, like you can't show a metric for it. Right. That like, this is the right thing to do. That's one of the, well, that's one of the worst things, right. Is because like the metric is basically bad things don't happen. And the action that you're trying to take is like cultural change. So it's a very slow change where the feedback loop is going to be that nothing happened. It's like, it's, it's really difficult to measure. Right. Yeah. I, I can't give you a count of the number of incidents that didn't happen. Right. Like that's the metric that I would like, but like I can't. Right. And so you kind of have to like infect management. And so the question is like, how do you do that? Right. And so one thing that I, I was doing right before I switched teams and unfortunately didn't finish because of COVID and stuff was like, it's one thing to look at individual incidents and go into a lot of detail, but we were looking, I was doing some work with, with some peers, putting Ryan Kitchens, who's still on the team looking at, okay, let's look across the incidents that happened this year and not like metrics wise and buckets, but like what are themes that we can see because we did like more like qualitative analysis on the instance, can we look at patterns like, okay, like here's something that somebody didn't know, right? Like, so like one huge problem that you're going to see again and again and again is that there's some missing bit of shared context. Like, you know, this person didn't know X and this person didn't know Y. And now in an organization, like this is also like the hardest problem to solve is getting the information into the heads of the people who need it, the right information, right? And like Netflix is like the opposite of Apple. It's like super open in terms of information, but that means that like you could spend full time just reading docs and do nothing else and you still wouldn't get all the information and you would get no work done right and so like it's not just an access thing it is like how do you figure out what the important bits are and that is really really hard but it's a critical factor that comes up again and again and again and so you know and and here like one of the other challenges is like i can come up with problems but not like this sort of this sort of approach is good at finding like problems but not necessarily solutions you got to sort of try different things but if you can provide insights to management about stuff that they wouldn't see otherwise i think that is how you show that there's value like look at this thing like look i saw that like this team is starting to go underwater right like and and like if we don't do something then like you know three people are going to leave and they're going to get burnt out and like, if you can provide those insights and you say like, look, this is how I know this. And it's sort of like qualitative kind of analysis. Then I think you can, 
you know, make an argument for more resources to do that. So you, you've got to provide the insights. And there's a famous quote by, I think, Danny Kahneman, the like psychology researcher, who says that like, like no one ever made a decision based on a number. They need a story, right? And like what we do, like the resilience stuff, it's all stories, right? And so like if you can tell a good story about why this stuff is valuable, then you can, you know, I hope, then you can you can argue for it. But I mean, to be honest, like very few orgs are, are able to justify this. And it's it's hard. And like, I would not say I've cracked this nut yet. And, you know, management can change and that's it. Like, and, you know, the whole thing changes and you you lose it. And so it's very, I would say, fragile and like precarious and very contingent on the particular you know, details of your work, right? Like you can, you can kind of do what you can to foster, you know, this sort of, I don't know, like qualitative analysis of what's going on, but it's easy to lose. So, you know, maybe going back five years or so, every engineer that you asked would agree that like developer productivity is important and like your ability to deploy changes quickly to production is important and like your ability to have automated test coverage is important. All these things are like engineers broadly agreed and managers who came up as engineers probably agreed as well, but like they didn't have a way of quantifying it. And then, you know, the main change that I think happened in that arena is when Accelerate was published with Gene Kim and Jez Humble and Nicole Forsgren. And, you know, they sort of coalesced around like these these four key metrics and they tried to support that like delivery lead time deployment frequency mean time to restore and change fail percentages like the sort of the gold standard by which all developer productivity can be judged and i don't think it actually made a difference on the ground engineers always knew that stuff was important and they continue to know that stuff was important but i think it made a difference to management because now people could point and say hey like here's the rationale right these are now our metrics for the org and you know you guys have to judge us based on that basically do you think there's sort of an analogous Think that's possible for resilience engineering and, and do you think that's coming yeah so i think the real challenge for resilience engineering is to tell management that you cannot get away with relying on a small number of of metrics to do these sorts of things right like that's the key thing and it's really hard right so the appeal of metrics like the and i totally think you're absolutely right like the findings that like dr forksman like published about and and wrote up in accelerate right like any of those things if you talk to engineers like they would say yeah these are important right like we knew this right like no one says like oh no i you know i don't care how fast it takes to deploy i don't mind waiting an extra two hours or a day right this was known but like it is very tempting for leadership, which is trying to oversee an organization that they can't see much of, right? Like no one knows, I don't know about you, but like my manager doesn't know what I do during the day, right? Like they have no visibility. And it's very, very hard to manage something where you just can't see what's going on, right? And so metrics give them visibility, right? You can say, okay, how are we doing? What's what's our MTTR look like? How's the trend? What's the time between you commit and it actually goes out to production, right? But like resilience is about the fact that like, this, the interesting stuff is that, well, I don't know if it's about the fact, but like a big part of it, I would say, at least from my perspective, is that is the stuff that you can't see that way. It's, it's the stuff that is not visible through the metrics, right? It is like the workarounds that people are doing to get those metrics up, but they're actually taking additional risks because of that, right? Like, what are we sacrificing to improve those metrics, right? So there's all these signals and no matter like, and like, so you could say, okay, like, do like a huge number of metrics, but like that's not practical for leadership, right? Like, because if you give them like, you know, a thousand metrics, what are they going to do with that? Right. And so, so the challenge is how do leaders get signals about what's important, what's dangerous, 
right? So like what I worry about is like when the metrics are fine, but there's a danger, right? Like if the metrics are bad, okay. So the thing with the metrics, if the metrics are bad, that usually means there's a problem. If the metrics are fine, there can be a problem, but you don't see it. And that's what I worry about the most is the metrics are fine. They're stable, but there's a problem and there's a risk and we don't see it happening because people are, you know, putting off this, you know, tech debt or whatever, or sacrificing some operational stuff, right? And so the challenge for leadership is like, okay, like how does leadership get better at collecting those kinds of signals from the organizations in ways that are not easily visible? And that is really, really hard. And that is a very tough sell because like leaders are already like completely squeezed the same way, like line managers are the same way we are directors. Everyone up the chain is stretched to capacity, right? And to tell them, okay, like I'm going to make your life harder, right? You're going to have to work harder to figure out new ways to, to collect information that you didn't see before. I'm going to write qualitative reports that are like, you know, 50 pages or something or 30 pages, which I've done rather than give you like a graph that shows you like our, you know, our products. Like it's wow, like forget it, you know, like, like that is a really, really tough sell. And you know, I'm not a manager. It's like, it's a very difficult thing, I think. I'm very comfortable as an IC. But I think like that is the pitch we have to make. And that is a very, very difficult pitch. And if you look historically at, I would say like trends around management, they are usually like, here is a process that will make this tractable where we are saying, look, you just have to become an expert and you have to like build these muscles and figure out how to like talk to people and listen and get information from different sources. And it's just, it's a much tougher sell. And I don't exactly know how to sell them. We sort of have to, I'm hoping actually. So you mentioned like stuff comes up from, from engineering management. I'm hoping like a new generations of, of ICs that are, you know, the learn about resilience engineering kind of stuff. When they become managers, they will have these perspectives, but you're talking about generational change. This is like progress, like one funeral at a time kind of thing. It's like, you know, maybe multi-generational. One thing I'm struck by is I often have the experience I think that you're talking about, which is like, I want to protect you from negative outcomes. And people are like, great, do that. But like, at the end of the day, let's say you do that, it's hard to prove that you have protected people from X number of negative outcomes. But I think it seems like a lot of the folks who are focusing on resilience are starting to understand that the same things that contribute to your resilience contribute to your capacity to do more work, right? Because you talk a lot about Rasmussen and that sort of like the boundaries around work. There's like a financial boundary. There's sort of like other things, but work is constantly pushing us towards an air boundary. And, and so if you aren't doing the work to increase your capacity, you're going to hit the air boundary and that's where incidents happen. But the same thing that sort of like pushes the air boundary away from us as we do more and more and bigger and bigger and more complex work is also increasing our capacity to do work. Do you feel like there's like a story that we could tell that's like more of the positive? Like we are increasing your team's ability to do more things over time. And like, do you feel like that could be a more interesting or a more compelling story to tell management than like we've protected you from X number of negative events? Yeah, I totally think you can. And so like, you know, to make a pitch about like improving expertise, right? Like on my team, you know, improving operational expertise meant that we were, you know, we were more quickly able to diagnose problems. We spent a lot less time, you know, when like debugging certain issues because we got visibility because of metrics. And so less time spent troubleshooting is more time spent developing and delivering value, right? And, and it also like, you know, the engineers just perform at a higher level, right? We do become more more efficient in that sense, right? And so I, I think the learning aspects, right, of the sort of upskilling is compelling because it's saying like, look, we're going to sort of reduce the overhead of the, you know, firefighting kind of stuff, right? The kind of stuff that drags on us. 
in a way that like it's not just okay we're spending a whole bunch of time paying down tech debt right like that's one way to to, to improve productivity but that's also like a, a chunk of time so I, I think you can definitely make the arguments around around improving expertise that that's just like you know there's clearly an roi there there's clearly like we are going to get better as an organization right like we we know that like experts everyone knows experts are more valuable that's why we pay you know seniors higher salaries than juniors right like everyone everyone is is aware of that and so i think that's an easier pitch to make about the learning and as a mechanism for improving the yeah you get capacity is a good term the challenge of the increasing capacity is then you just ask to do more right like so you improve capacity and then they throw more work okay you can you can move faster then we're going to throw more work at you and so you just like you move the boundary out and you move closer to the boundary the harder part is i mean it's it's always an eternal struggle to carve out the additional like the thing about capacity is that you have to keep some of it right like capacity means you have some some extra juice that you can use when you need it right and you're not sort of and you need some like social, like organizational capital to justify like not running at full capacity. I mean, this is a challenge with the centralized incident management team. Like these folks just sit around waiting for incidents to happen. Like you could have them, you know, be software engineers and building stuff, right? But their extra capacity that's around. One of the things that I think is interesting about this is like, it sounds like what we're sort of saying is like, like the work that Dr. Forsgren has done in Accelerate, it's valuable, but it doesn't paint the whole picture. Right. There's lots of things that we're saying is like, there's always going to be this like squishy space and the company or the culture that you work in has to value exploring the space constantly, because that's where you're going to find the things that you can't measure is in that sort of like squishy space. But like, maybe there could be like, what about like things like psychological safety and like other things that like, if you know that a team has psychological safety, maybe they're better at exploring the squishy space, right? So maybe there's ways in which you can measure or evaluate a team where it's not like, are you following these 10 metrics? But it's like, do you have the right environment to create the ability to discover the unknowable at the moment? Yeah, I think I feel like psychological safety is really sort of caught on. Like, I think everyone at least, like, I don't know, pays lip service to it. Like, Netflix is pretty good. I would say people are, are pretty, because once again, they're all seniors. Everyone sort of has strong opinions. They're general. I mean, a lot of people have imposter syndrome coming in, but then like people are, are comfortable, you know, disagreeing, you know, with each other and are okay with that. I have tried, I would say for, so like one of the things, and I blogged about this, like I, I try to make it okay for when I have done incident write-ups that like, you know, I name all, you know, everyone's names I put there explicitly because like, that's okay. Right. Like it's not the, like, if you're here, then like, we trust that you are good. Right. And so the assumption is that like, if we want to learn as much as possible, we should assume that everyone who was involved was doing things that made sense to them at the time. And by like, putting the names in, we're, we're signaling, like, there's nothing to be ashamed of here. Like, and I, I do this myself, but of course, like when you, you know, when you push to production and something breaks, you feel terrible, right? Like we're humans. We feel bad when we're involved in breaking things. To me, like the psychological safety thing, like I'm very lucky to work in an organization where I feel it's there. Right. And so it's hard for me to like, I can say these things, but like, I don't work in places where like I have read horror stories about like government contractor stuff during the healthcare.gov where like someone basically got fired, you know, sort of got fired on the spot kind of thing, or they they accidentally dropped a database, right? Like, like <laughs> there are environments that are like that, but like those are, I don't know what to do about that. Like I, I'm fortunate I don't work in one of those. I would just leave. Like I can choose my environment. Like I'm very, very privileged about that. I think if you don't have psychological safety, you're like, you have a huge problem, right? And it's much harder to do these things unless you're at a place where you, you feel like where I can go and say like half-baked things to my team, right? And like, here's, I'm sketching out a doc and it's like probably all wrong, but we're just going to 
you know, talk about it. So one of the things that, you know, I've been recently reading a book about engineers. It's called Designing Engineers. And it's about how like engineers actually do design. And the guy who wrote it is a professor of engineering at MIT. And he did some case studies. He went out to various companies and sort of observed what was going on. And what he found was that a lot of the design work happens in the meetings, in the interactions between people where like different people have sort of incomplete, you know, views of what's going on. And then they talk and they sort of negotiate what's happening. And it's in those interactions between people where the design actually happens. And I think like one of the things that I, I would like to try to push is like to think of like the team or the org is the unit, right? Like it's not like I'm designing it or like I'm operating the system because I'm on call, but we are collectively doing this and each of us is only has a partial view. And like it's the emerging result of what we do that is the thing, right? It's not like, you know, I did this and you did this, but we are doing this together. And like you should not expect to you know, you don't have the whole picture. You only have one perspective. And it's like the the interaction of us together that is the thing that is, you know, developing and operating these, these services. And it's, you know, we talk a little bit about that, but it's a big, like, perspective shift. And even I'm still, like, wrapping my head around that, that this is the a joint cognitive system is what the resilience people would say, right? Like, this is what we have. Like, it's not just us. It's the, this is the system that we care about. I think it's interesting, though, that, like, they're using psychological safety as a reference because there, too, I would argue that there's sort of, like, an analog to the Accelerate book, which was Google's Project Aristotle, which was sort of, like, the, the seminal thing that translated psychological safety into, like, a concept that all managers could get behind because now there's, like, a research paper that validates it. And there, again, they actually have metrics that you can use to measure psychological safety in a team, whereas, like, to us as engineers, I don't think we would have tried to go, go about and do that. It's just sort of a yes or no thing. And I'm still sort of left thinking that, like, you know, either there needs to be a sea change in management, which maybe, you know, goes back to what you were alluding to, to like one funeral at a time. But I feel like even then, you know, we might still be looking for something that can translate sort of the resilience culture that you're describing into <laughs> a cliff notes for managers that they can measure. I don't know if that's if that's ever going to happen or if it's or if it's even sort of realistic to talk about it that way. I do want to hear your thoughts there. So I, mean, I think what we, what we need to do is we need to figure out a way to provide management with a tool for aggregating the sort of massive information that they have, that they have access to that is not simply metrics, right? Like we need to give them an alternative. And I think we don't have a good story around that today, right? Like, you know, you mentioned just now, like, you know, metrics around psychological safety or, or whatever. And once again, that's a way of aggregating data, right? Like, and they need, they need that. They only have a certain amount of bandwidth and, and we need to figure out a way to provide them or upskill them with a way for them to aggregate the signals without relying on metrics. And we, I think we just haven't figured that out yet. No one's written like, well, I guess there's been like a resilient management book, but like we, we need more in that direction. Hmm. Interesting. So we have a few minutes left and there's two questions that we ask everybody. One of them is just sort of, and it sounds like you've got lots, so I'm excited to hear your answer to this question. The question is like, what sort of resources have influenced the way that you work? And that can be, that can be like books, of course, and research papers and, and conference talks, but it could also be just like people that you follow, etc. Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, I got sucked into this two ways. One is reading a book by Sidney Decker called Drift into Failure, which really was sort of like my entree into this resilience world. And like, I, so I have an academic background and that's sort of one of his more academic books. And it just like completely, I don't know, like I loved it and I strongly recommend it. Uh, and the other one is John Alspa, right? Who has been banging this drum for a very, very long time. And at one point I was like, okay, fine. Like, let me start looking into this, this stuff. And, you know, John works with David Woods, who was Sidney Decker's PhD advisor. So the connection is there. And so, you know, after John constantly evangelizing about this material, I started to read about it. And then I just like, 
I just got completely sucked in and, and started reading tons and tons of papers. And, you know, if you go to resiliencepapers.club, you can see my, my list of papers that I've collected. I haven't even read all of them, but I've read many of them. And there's just a ton there. Nice. Sydney Decker was my entryway as well. I love the in the tunnel, out of the tunnel perspective. That was the first thing that really resonated with me in terms of like, oh, we're looking at this all wrong. So highly recommended. So our last question is, how much of your time do you spend coding nowadays? Quite a bit. I would say roughly half my time is spent coding. So I'm really like a traditional, you know, software engineer. It varies. You know, some days it's more docs and, and meetings, but, you know, I do spend a good chunk of my time still coding. Nice. Awesome. Awesome. Well, Laura, thanks so much for joining us on the show today. It was really lots of fun. Yeah, I enjoyed it. That's it. Thanks so much for listening to Staff Inch. If you enjoyed today's show, please consider adding a review on iTunes, Spotify, or your podcatcher of choice. It helps others find the show and is a really useful signal to us that folks are finding value in this so that we keep doing it. You can find the notes from today's episode at our website, podcast.staffenge.com. The website also has our contact info. Please don't be shy. 